Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 32, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. Today's podcast is the first part of my interview with Carnegie Mellon professor Stephen Rudish. And on today's podcast, we discuss exactly why he went into mathematics and the problem that really got him into theoretical computer science. Here we go. I have a kind of long meditation about the question of what brought me into mathematics or what, 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 were, my, what were my formative mathematical experiences. Okay. So when I was a kid, so say six years old, seven years old, I was pretty intellectual, which was the currency of my household. My parents were literary people, and there were always professors, and they were always discussing things you know, interpretations of books and poems. And, and so I participated. I had my own interpretation of a romantic poem, say, even though I was very far from puberty. And this really got a laugh, but nobody responded to my argument. I was just somehow funny, or the things I said had no force because, well, I just wasn't valid as as an intellect, you know, you, you need to have experience to have validity inherently. And, of course, mathematics is so wonderfully different, right? I mean, if a six-year-old solves some problem, then people will actually listen and think it through, and if they're wrong, they'll explain to them why. And I'll say that one of the things that pushed me to math as early as possible, you could say, was I, I couldn't get any status as an intellectual by sort of staying in the other world. So I went off in my own direction, and I discovered computers, and I was a faculty brat. So uh, my university uh, had computers, and I was able, maybe at, toward the end of being seven, and pretty much when I was eight, to start programming on my own. They, they thought it was cute. They let me do it. And I started writing all these programs. And this was only possible because a really uh, lovely person had written a, a completely accessible, assume-nothing introduction, which was sitting there in the terminal room, that it said how to program in BASIC, and it started explaining everything. And I just read it and started doing it. I want to say that that basic point that when someone takes the trouble to make something accessible with no presumptions, no barriers to accessibility, it's really enabling. And, and that was con- is consistently true for me as an individual, and I've seen this over and over in, in my career. So I started programming. I was very passionate about it. I started challenging myself. I wrote a very bad chess playing program. I wrote a bunch of things, and I ultimately challenged myself to write my own programming language. It was called SPIT, Symbolic 
Programming Instruction Translator was my clever acronym. And, you know, I, I worked on this without, you know, being self-conscious. I just thought that was natural thing you would do if you were a programmer. And, and so it, it, it was a pretty good program in a lot of ways. I mean, I didn't think of a stack, so I, my computer language could only uh, handle three levels of uh, parentheses. On the other hand, it could actually do arbitrary precision arithmetic. Okay, so I, I had to think through how you do multiplication and addition and all these things, exponentiation, and write it out. This one thing that I did is really was the foundation of my self-confidence as an individual and my personality as a researcher. I really had a, a sphere in which I could confirm the internal consistency of my own conceptual ideas. I would just think about what I wanted to do, think and think, to think of how you would write a program, organize a program. It's this imaginary world, and yet when you make it, you then program it, and then you find out, oh, it just works. And so you know that your internal world really does correspond to something consistent, which is the very definition of what math is, is some kind of self-consistent set of ideas. So even though no one understood what I was doing and no one was there to give me confirmation, even, I mean, I could say that in some sense, no one knew what I had done, but it, it really didn't matter. Now, I was a total pain in the ass at school. I was the last kid that anyone would have predicted would someday win a good old prize in logic and computation. My math grades weren't just lousy. I, I just refused to do any clerical procedure. To me, if I show you the program, I'm not going to go to the trouble of then executing it. So I refused to learn my times table. Even when I was in high school, I gave my chemistry teacher a program that would balance equations, chemical equations, and I announced I'm not going to be answering any questions. This <laughs> program is going to provide the answer. <laughs> also, I happen to have a very good and nice chemistry teacher in high school, but okay, consider back, say, in fifth grade when I was petulantly refusing to do the uh, required work. In fifth grade, I was having this trouble, so I was, like, I guess, 11. My mom somehow convinces the school that all of these lousy grades are just because I'm not challenged and blah, blah, blah. I should really be taking algebra, which was eighth grade, I guess. So I go to this algebra class, and the teacher is like going on about numbers being quantities and operations being ways to combine quantities. So I raise my hand and I say, well, isn't a number just a string of symbols? Aren't operations just a list of symbol manipulation rules? I have no idea what you mean by quantity. This 
was probably the single most precocious public intellectual statement from my childhood, of course. But of course, the school didn't appreciate it. I was actually sent for evaluation, and they officially concluded that I had an insurmountable cognitive deficit with regard to my concept of number, and I officially flunked fifth grade. Like I said, I was a pain in the ass, and, and I lacked the operational precocity that was required to you know, have an exception made for you. Kind of my own quirky experience is part of why I wanted to mentor kids. So even though I teach at university, I do this program for high school age and some kids come younger. So I can be that mentor for a bright kid who maybe isn't connecting in school. I mean, I know what it's like to be a bit of an alien life form. Of course, I went on to do okay, but I easily could have been eliminated from uh, the pipeline. And I discovered also, I guess I thought like when I went to graduate school that I would run into other people who had had similar experiences of being, you know, a little strange or put off or uh, by school or something, but actually I, I didn't. So I think it's pretty unusual. But it all comes down to my writing this program when I was eight. When I was 12, I found this book called Goodall's Proof by uh, Newman. It's a, it's a book that writes in complete English sentences. It writes out what's going on in Goodall's Proof and explains it. And it's, it's, just, it's meant for the intelligent reader, but without some precondition. You know, you, you write, how else could you learn about Goodall's Proof when you're a kid without a book like this? So just like this example of my learning programming from a pamphlet that was put there by someone who cared, I was there at 12. I mean, I was basically just looking in the math library. And actually, first, I had pulled out a volume, which was a to something totally different. And I'd been looking at it, and I said, oh, this is cool. Yeah, I think this is what I'd like to do for my life. But then I was really intimidated. Like, so what do you, oh, my God. I looked, and the volumes of this guy's collected works was like this giant shelf. And I thought, oh, wow, to be a mathematician, you, you must have to, like, produce, like, a factory, you know. Like, anyway, this was Euler's collected work. And, uh, I, I had no I mean, so I thought, well, you know, I want to be a mathematician, but this is pretty demanding. But still, I think, I, I think this is what I want to try to be. Then I found this Goodall's proof book, and I start to read it, and, oh, my God, it just... It was so easy for me, right? With this, the foundation of writing this program, if you write a program for your own language when you are eight, then by the time you're 12, you really understand syntax and semantics. I mean, the whole good old numbering thing, I mean, all these concepts which are supposed to be really surprising, to me, were just second nature. Like, oh, yes, but of course. And I got so excited reading that book that... I almost fainted. I mean, I, you know, I'd sweat running down, and it was like in a state of complete elation. In fact, I guess it must be what freebasing cocaine's like. In, in, in fact, one analogy is, 
in that moment of reading that book, the change in my understanding of the world, you know, the conceptual cleverness of what was going on, the philosophical impact of what was going on, really nothing, no other increment in my mathematical understanding of my life compared to that moment. So in that sense, it really was like the first time you try some drug. I mean, at that moment, I just thought, I have to be a logician. This is, this is what I was made for. So I went toward college, even coming into high school, I knew I wanted to be a logician. And I didn't really know about computer science in and of itself. And I, I didn't know about Turing and undecidability and so forth. So, I mean, this is, again, this aspect. When someone has mentorship, you can expect them to know about related ideas. When you're not mentored, you know, get this very uh, personal sense of things. And anyway, so I had a a kind of un, an unusual uh, background. Oh, well, one thing also is when I was in high school, so in fact, also this is uh, maybe one of my, the sins of my life. I stole a library book. I mean, it's the only book I've stole, so. Well, it's the only thing I stole, and that's pretty. Anyway, I'm glad to confess it here, though. It, it was a book on propositional logic. I just thought it was all very lovely. It talked about Boolean algebra. Also, no one had taken out the book for the 20 years it had been in the school, and I, I lusted for it in my heart, so I took it. But in, in any case, when I was reading about how propositional logic was complete, there's a proof that says for any Boolean function, well, one, you can represent as a propositional formula, and two, for any tautological propositional formula, you can derive it. And basically your proof is this exponentially long thing in which you're essentially trying every satisfying assignment to it. And at the time, I mean, I didn't know anything about growth rates or anything like that, but I remember thinking, oh, well, this proof is doing it by this exhaustive enumeration. I wonder if you can prove it without, like, doing that kind of exhaustive enumeration. And that question, that's open, okay? I mean, uh, how short can the proof of a propositional tautology be in the worst case? It's very much of an open question. And, in fact, if you ask, is, could there be a polynomial-sized proof, this is a version of the P versus NP intersect co-NP question, which in, in plain words, there are some statements for which there, for each thing, there's a, a short proof that yes and a short proof that no. That's the NP intersect co-NP part. So when you're given a tautology, what's the shortest proof of that? That it is a tautology. That is a question that's equivalent to P equals NP intersect co-NP. The thing is, so I remember coming up against something that I didn't know was part of something really interesting, but I do remember asking myself the question, which actually goes to show also how natural these sort of questions are. 
Now, when I went to college, Wesleyan University, kind of very liberal arts place, and there were some good math professors, you know, I mean, it's not like this math powerhouse sort of place, and um, I was a kind of eager beaver about, like, wanting to do research and these sort of things, and people would say, oh, it's not necessary, you don't really need to do that, you're just an undergrad, and I'm like, please, please, I want to do this. I started to learn about things, and I learned about the PNP question, and I thought, my God, that's just the most beautiful question I've ever heard. And in fact, I started to think about it, and I thought, oh, this is exactly what Goodall, what Goodall would be working on. It, I mean, in particular, suppose I give you a proposition in first-order logic. Is there a proof of that proposition? Well, that turns out to be undecidable. Of course, Goodall's result was to show that, uh, well, well, A, there isn't such a proof, and then B, it turns out you can't. There's no decision procedure for that. And that was a shock to the world and a blow to the Hilbert program of trying to found mathematics on a computationally explicit notion of what a good proof is, you know, to give a mechanically checkable notion of proof that encompasses all the arguments of mathematics. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the bounded version where you say, suppose I want to prove a thousand pages or less, okay, where you, you give some bound B of the length of the proof, well, now there's no undecidability or anything. You're the, we can just enumerate all the exponentially many proofs of possibilities, but it's just some finite number of possible proofs that one has to consider, and you could just go through and try each one by brute force. So there is no undecidability, and there is a way to do it, and then you can ask, oh, well, how much shorter is, say, the fastest way to do it? And that is the BNP question, right? First of all, I want to say it's not even known that there's a substantially better way than uh, just exponential enumeration. Now, the PNP question doesn't require of us that we that uh, finding a proof really has no shortcut. It's saying, could there be a linear time or a quadratic time algorithm to find a proof? Could there be a polynomial time, end of k for some fixed k? And the answer, I mean, well, I think the answer is no. There is no fast shortcut to tell you whether or not there's a proof. And equivalently, there is no fast shortcut to generate a proof if there is one. When I was an undergrad and I found out about PNP, I immediately realized that, oh, well, the bounded version of this question of finding a proof, the bounded thing is perfectly solvable, and this is just, this is just the same, it's equivalent. And I thought, oh, well, philosophically, if, if there were a way to do this, it's a sense, it's a resurrection of the Hilbert program. I mean, you say, okay, look, Sometimes there isn't a proof to find, 
But if we want to ask the question, is there proof of less than a thousand pages, that somehow if I'm going to do something that's only going to be, say, take time that is linear or quadratic in a number like a thousand, then I can just answer from myself. The question is, is there a proof of less than or equal to a thousand pages? And if not, well, no journal is going to publish it anyway. I mean, in, in particular, no one, you know, we can't understand such proofs. We, you know, from the point of view of the proofs that we're interested in, we don't need to know about proofs, uh, you know, that have no shorter proof than a thousand pages. So it seemed to me, oh, wow, even with everything that's happened, if there were a fast method, that I mean, that could in, in some sense be a kind of re- the resurrection of the Hilbert program and saying, look, we're going to give you this mechanical procedure that really you can just run it and get to the heart of the matter of whether there's a proof there or, or even what that proof is, if it's there. So when uh, Kevin Compton, who was my, he was sort of my big professor in the sense that he taught all these wonderful classes that uh, interested me and uh, gave me independent studies in the classes he didn't offer. And so I learned a lot from him, but there was this moment where I said, oh, well, this is exactly what Goodall would be working on. You could see this as a resurrection of the Hilbert program, and you, you know, you, in case he was guilty for killing it, can somehow assuage his conscience. And I was saying something that turns out to be right on the money, but he, did, he didn't react particularly well. I mean, he just sort of thought, well, this is really presumptuous for you to even think about what Goodall would be doing next. And, and I just thought, but just on the grounds of being intellectually natural. And he said, ah, you know. But then in 1988, which was the time I was getting my PhD thesis, they found this letter from Goodall to von Neumann. In this letter, he really poses P versus N, P question, um, in exactly these terms of saying, oh, gee, suppose we bound the length of the proof. Uh, well, then there certainly is a mechanical procedure to find the proof. And then you can ask if there's a shortcut. And Goodall points out that historically, uh, things like Euclid's algorithm give us an exponential leg up in the way they work. There's a clever algorithm in which you can do exponentially less work in many situations. So this letter was you know, a total vindication to me. I mean, I mean, by the time I found out about it, I mean, I, I didn't need, I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was traumatized or anything. I mean, so uh, it just is very, very interesting. Also, in this letter, Goodall is so clear, and it's, it's a short letter, just one page and a third. And in it, he's accomplishing so much. So apparently, all these people who knew him go on and on about what a pain in the ass he was, especially past a certain age. Um, I spoke to Selberg, at the, who was at the Institute for advanced study, and he was chair of the math department back, you know, back in the day, and talks about Gödel and this and that and the other thing. And, but people don't talk about him as being mathematically active. And yet, this letter, in this single letter, he's got 
I mean, he's basically laying out the fundamental definitions of complexity theory and, and asking the P versus NP questions. So I can't help but wonder, however a pain in the ass he might have been, what other things might lie in this guy's letters. So this question, the, the P versus NP question, is something that really resonated for me. I mean, I also, I had a surprising experience or the unexpected experience of naively being attracted to this great question and just going, applying to grad school and saying, this is what I want to do. And somehow getting into graduate school and continuing to be a researcher and essentially having a career in which, you know, people know me for continuing to be interested in this great question. Now, at the time, like when I was in college writing my graduate school essays, Kevin Compton said to me, even if you want to think about PNP, you don't want to say that in the admissions essay, it's, it's immature. And I was like, well, I can't help it. I'm honest and I just can't help myself. So it's, it's something that really drew me in. And it's not only that I have a flair for the philosophical personally, like what the question is resonates for me. The very foundation of my personality in almost every way goes back to this eight-year-old experience writing my own programming language. And just thinking through this idea of, well, there are these different programs, and you can programs can work in different ways. Different programs do the same thing. Some of them are have certain virtues and just all these things that people study when they study computation. The only thing about the world I really, I really understood and believed in, in some sense. I happen to have these particularly nutty intellectual parents who were Marxist, Stalinist types and told me everything I was learning was propaganda, not to trust anything in the world. And now I didn't know if they were right, but for me, because I knew there was this one world that did make sense and that resonated with me, I knew that, well, I don't care if they're right or not. I really just don't care. <laughs> anyway, and one thing about what P and P is asking is, can we prove that the, fr- the fruits of creative genius as we experience them are really in principle things that you can only come to with tremendous sweat and inspiration. In particular, every human knows the difference between being able to tell you what feels good. Like you listen to music, you say, oh, I like that. Well, you're an expert. It's effortless to decide if you like that. But if you say to someone, okay, can you compose music that you yourself would like? Well, the answer is, for most people, that's no. Similarly, most people uh, can read a book, and some books they say, wow, I really like that. I mean, even, even you know, very average people, their books, they say, oh, no, I really like that. But they could never write a book that they themselves would like in that way. And, of course, in math, we have uh, the experience that someone shows us a proof, and it's this beautiful thing, and you verify the proof, or, okay, you sit there and you really try to make sure you understand it and 
how the logic of the proof, and someone explains it to you, and you say, oh, that's great. I, wow, that's so cool. And there are lots of people who can do that, right? I mean, any math major, in fact, that's certainly the least that you can expect, right, is that they do have the ability to hear a proof and understand how it goes step by step. But, of course, when it comes to generating the proof, well, that's the much more rare creative mathematician. Okay, and so, we, you know, there's lots of good things that we're detecting, recognizing that something satisfies a condition. Well, that's a common thing that we, we do in many spheres, instantly even, right? I mean our emotional response to music, whatever. Our brain is computing it for us. We just experience it. You know, if, if, you're, uh, if you're in math, someone can tell you their brilliant proof, and they don't even necessarily have to explain that much before you get it, in a, but in a way that, you know, you, you couldn't have actually just sat around and generated the proof or just figured it out, even though you only need a succinct hint to get it. If it's like when you're an expert, I mean, you, you need a, um, but you still need this hint. So this is the question, what, what is this ratio? The, the, the time it takes to solve something versus the time it takes to plug in any individual solution. This is, I mean, PNP is asking, what, so what's that ratio in the, in the worst case. If, if creativity, as we experience it, right, it, it, it's something definitely for the elite. There's a, brilliant, there's a brilliance in it, whether you're an artist or whether you're a mathematician. You have to summon all your resources, and, and you might try to solve something for years before coming up with some simple answer. And PNB is asking the question, well, can you prove that real, it's just really true, that there are some questions where inherently finding the proof really is w w way harder than verifying any instance. So if it, like if I give you equations, can say, what's the time to take input numbers, plug them into the equations, and see what values they have? or to see if they solve the equation. And then uh, if I give you an, any domain of bounded set of numbers, I can say, do the equations have a solution on this domain? And you can say, all right, let's take whatever the fastest algorithm, like the algorithm God would use to do it. Is there some kind of shortcut? And anyway, I believe the answer is no. Right, because I want people like me to be employed. Like, when Gödel showed his incompleteness theorem, there were a lot of people who took it very pessimistically. You know, they're like, oh my God, math is, this is so depressing. But there were a lot of other people who responded optimistically, saying, oh, well, this says that a mathematician's work will never be done. For all eternity, we will always be able to formulate questions that are beyond what we can answer. But we'll have a language to formulate the questions. And P 
versus NP is kind of asking, okay, at what rate does that happen? I mean, is it true that when I formulate a question that it's going to be exponentially harder to actually find a solution to that question? Is that true even for the most... I mean, it's clear that that's true where humanity currently stands for how we approach questions. But is there some magic algorithm that can do this? We can pose questions that are impossible to answer, but actually the, that clever part come up with, you know, you, you find some way of doing something, you know, some calculational shortcut that you don't expect, some, you know, that, that little, that aha moment if it does have a shortcut, well, that would sort of say, okay, creativity is overrated. There's this more general approach. But this is all something Gödel understood in this letter to von Neumann in the sense that he says, you know, if this were true, the problem-solving work of mathematicians would be over. What mathematicians instead would do is just simply f- formulate the next question. That's why almost everyone believes that there is no shortcut to do this. Uh, I mean, it's sort of, it really is a compelling mathematical question because it corresponds to things that arise in our experience, right? Our, Our intellectual and our artistic experience, this difference between the, the complexity of generating, the complexity of recognizing. Anyway, that's the, that's what really drew me to this question, like, well, as a lifetime project, I mean. Um, well, yeah, that was all an initial thought. There. <laughs> so that is it for the first part of my interview with Stephen Rudish. If you have any feedback, please send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. I promise you, I will respond. That's kind of my personal email account, so please feel free to send me an email. You can find more about our guest on today's episode by heading over to acmescience.com, and also you can find out about the Irreverent Math Talk Show Combinations of Permutations and my movie discussion show sam and dan and over at acmescience.com make sure to stay tuned also for the second part of the interview with steven rudish the music on today's episode was the pie song by hard and firm and the outro is sp12 you can find them over at opsound.org where you can also find a lot of creative commons licensed music which is licensed just like this show So thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you come back for another episode of Strongly Connected Components.